The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew, not, and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and and treated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful to gather this morning here in this beautiful city of San Diego on this beautiful morning. I think there's uh, been times for all of us this week in our lives or those uh, who we, uh, people were around or as we look at the news, there's times when our hearts have searched for something deeper, uh, for purpose, for meaning, um, for justice, for healing, for restoration. As we hear from Pastor Randall this morning uh, on this passage that deals with self-righteousness, the self-righteousness of the older brother and the ever-open arms of the father and his love and acceptance, we come with open hearts and we ask for you to speak into our lives and teach us. So uh, we lift up Pastor Randall this morning, um, give him the words Um, the ability uh, to communicate your word to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks, Tim. Hey, good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Good? It's great to see you this morning. Um, If I haven't met you yet, my name is Randall, and I'm pastor here. We have been going in uh, this series called Lost and Found in Luke 15, and uh, what we've been studying is really the heart of the gospel. Um, A little over a month ago, we had Easter, 
But what can happen is we, we don't really apply the power of the resurrection, the power of Jesus and the good news of the gospel to our hearts uh, after Easter. And so what we've been doing is walking through this passage in Luke 15, uh, looking at the heart of God and, and who he is. So again, if you've got your Bibles this morning, our text is from Luke 15, uh, 20 through 32. And the message this week is on the elder brother, the elder brother. And so last week we looked at the younger brother. This week we are looking at the older brother. Between 1668 and 1669, renowned Baroque uh, painter Rembrandt painted the parable we are studying today. It's simply called The Return of the Prodigal Son. My friend Andre was sharing with me just how profound this picture is for him and in his spiritual life. And for many, it has been over the years. One commenter on this, he's a, someone who appreciates art, Elko Cap, started to look at the details of this picture. And here's what he says. He says, you can see the father's love and the embrace and the tenderness in the way that he puts his hands on his son's back. The father's face is a bit pale. His cheeks appear a bit hollow. The effects of worrying for years about his missing son. And his face shows multiple emotions at the same time. Grief about his son's past behavior. Relief that his son is back. And the love in being able to embrace his son. Now we're going to keep this picture up here, but some have wondered how Rembrandt was able to capture such emotion in his art. Well, in his life, he'd experienced both prosperity and adversity. Earlier in Rembrandt's career, he was financially successful, happily married, uh, he had children. But soon after, three of his children died. His wife died at the age of 32, and he faced financial hardships from that point on. This is his last major painting during his life. It reflects the realities of our need as, as humanity for confession, repentance, forgiveness, mercy. But also, it reveals the harsh presence of jealousy, bitterness, pride, and self-righteousness. Again, Elko Cap, as he's looking at this picture, says Rembrandt uses light to emphasize the important aspects of the painting. The father and son are fully in the light. But listen to this, the older son is partially in the light. As we've studied over this past month, Luke 15 is a riveting message that's linked together by three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and today the lost sons. And we need all of these to give us a, a full picture of what Jesus is communicating. And it also gives us an idea of who Jesus was specifically talking to when he started telling these parables. One paraphrase of Luke 15 points out this, 
It, it says it like this. There's a time when a lot of men and women of questionable reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. It says the Pharisees and the religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And listen to this. Their grumbling triggered the parables. Their grumbling triggered the parables. Jesus, in Luke 15, was speaking specifically to the Pharisees and the religious scholars. And as I've done studies and research and looking at different commenters uh, on this passage, they, they've, they've all kind of come to this consensus that this text, Luke 15, is this engaging, in-your-face response by Jesus specifically to people who think that they're good. In this entire chapter, Jesus is saying that it's your goodness, what you think is your morality, and all of your decency and respectability, it's those things that can come between you and God. It's the things that can come between you and his embrace. Jesus is telling us something that blows apart all the human categories when we think about who God is and what he's done and who he's looking for. And it should speak to all of us. And so, how does Jesus go after the sin and darkness in the people who believe that they're morally upright, religiously educated, good and decent people of the world who don't really think that they need God in their life? Well, Jesus comes after not necessarily their actions, but their words. Their words. In Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? This is shocking, right? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jesus is calling them evil. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See, what we usually put in the category of sin is what we see as outward sins. But Jesus is coming to the things that look like they're invisible. They can't be as easily seen. And Jesus is coming after that. And so our text is Luke 15, 20 through 32. And just to give some context, Jesus was criticized for his association with outcasts. We looked at that in Luke chapter five. We looked at that in Luke chapter uh, seven. And, and also it happens again in Luke 19. And Jesus here is giving another parable to illustrate God's truth and his heart and how he's, he's coming after not just the younger brothers, but the older brothers. And that we all need him. We all need the father. And so Jesus gives hints about what was going on and stirring in the older brother's heart while all of this is happening. And what do we find? We find three things from the text. The first one is that we find that the older brother is angry. He's angry. 
Second, argumentative. And thirdly, absent. He's absent. Angry, argumentative, absent. And so the first one is angry. Look at verse uh, 25 through 29. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. What's happening here? Well, first, verse 25 says the older son was in the field. So we find that the younger son was out in the world. The older son is out in the field. Earlier in the parable, the young son did the unthinkable. Remember last week we talked about this by asking for his inheritance early and basically saying to his father, I would rather have your things than have you. And in Jewish culture, they would have understood it as basically the son coming to the father and saying, I wish that you were dead. It was a disgusting act of rebellion by the younger son. But now we find that the older son is working in the field. And uh, logically, the, the rest of his inheritance was his. And, and so this field would have been his and his focus was on taking care of his future investment. That was his field. And so what's he doing? He's taking care of his investment. See, his property after his father dies was going to be his. But the question is, and this is what I want you to hold on to, in this moment, was the most important thing for the older brother to be out in the field working? Was that the most important thing? Hold on to that because we're going to get back to that later. But that's what he was doing. Second, it says he drew near to the house. Said he started to hear music and dancing. There's a party going on. And so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant gives him a very concise description of what is happening. He doesn't give his own thoughts, but he just says, here's what's happening. Your brother has come. Your father killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. So he received the brother back and he's there. But the third thing we find is we see his response. It says he was angry and refused to go in. Now, what is the message of Christianity? Well, the gospel message is that it is received, not earned. And what we're seeing here is Jesus is pointing out a, a gospel paradigm shift that's happening as he's telling this story and that has to shift in the heart of the older brother to understand the father. Because verse 27 reminds us that the gospel is about being received, but the brother was busy outside working and earning. 
Why was the older brother angry? He was angry because of grace. Grace. See, think about this. In the older brother's mind, the younger brother did not earn this type of reception, did he? He didn't earn that. He did everything the opposite of earning that, right? He didn't deserve that type of welcome. And when we're reading that and we're starting to think about that, some of us are thinking in our mind, amen. He did not receive, like he does not deserve that type of welcome by the father. See, why does the younger brother get this type of reception while the older brother is working in the field? That's why this parable is so shocking. It should rattle our cage a little bit about how we believe that God receives people, right? Because naturally in our mind, you know what your first language is and my first language is? Working, earning, deserving, and believing that we can apply that to God and that we can work, earn, and deserve God's love, favor, and affection and God's embrace, That's your first language. That's my first language. Do you know what the gospel is? It's a second language. It's another type of language that says, no, God says, I will receive you, not based on anything that you've done, but everything that he does for you, everything that the Father is and who he is, and that's why you were received. You're received first, and then you follow. But many times we think that it's about earning first, and then God will eventually receive us. This is a gospel paradigm shift and is making the older brother really upset. Why does the younger brother get this type of reception while the older brother is working in the field? And so the older brother's heart is filled with anger, bitterness, rage, jealousy, and what happens is it all starts to come spilling out of his life. Now, here's my question to you today. Do you believe or do I believe that this type of anger, bitterness, rage, jealousy are just as sinful before God as the sins of the younger brother? Let me say that again, okay? Do we believe that this type of anger, bitterness, rage, jealousy that is spilling out of the older brother is just as sinful before God as the sins of the younger brother? Because if we don't see that, then we won't see ourselves in the story and we won't see ourselves in need of being received by the father just as much as the younger brother needed it. See, friends, for some of us, we've been in church for a long time and so it's like we feel like we know it and our lives are starting to come together and we feel like, well, I'm just a little bit more acceptable to God than those types of people. But friends, the gospel message is that all of us are in need of this type of grace this type of shocking grace from the Father that meets us at our worst. So he was angry. But second, he's argumentative. Look at verses 29 through 30. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when... This son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. What's next? Well, we see that just as in the case of the younger brother, it says his father came out and entreated him. Right, so remember, the, the, the younger brother comes home. The father runs towards him, embraces him. But now we see that the father doesn't just leave the older brother out in the field, but says, I'm gonna come out to you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk with you. See, the older brother needs the father to come out to him just as much as the younger brother needed it. But here's the scary truth. The older brother didn't realize he needed it. That's how sneaky this is. That's how sneaky sin is. He didn't think he needed the father to come out to him. But the father does. The word for entreat that's used here about the father is the Greek word parakaleo. It's the same word that's used for the Holy Spirit. And it means to come alongside, to plead with, to comfort, to console. And it's at this point that the heart of the older brother is exposed. It's exposed. Here's what he says. Look at, look at this. He says, these many years I have served you. I have served you. How is he treating the father here? He's treating the father not as a father, but as basically a master. Basically as somebody who, who really doesn't care about him, but just I'm here to serve you and that's it. That basically there's no relational connection. So this older brother sees his relationship with the father as basically this exchange that he gives to the father to get what he wants. He's distant. Next he says, I never disobeyed your command. I never disobeyed your command. Now this is a, the brother has a very lofty view of himself. Like a, very, very lofty view of, of, of who he thinks he is, that he never disobeyed, that he was perfect. And look at this, yet you never gave me. I've done all these things for you, but you never gave me even a young goat to be able to celebrate with my, with my friends. And so he's looking at the father as though the father would never have done that he was very ungrateful and then he says this he says this son of yours who is that son of of the fathers it was his brother is his brother but he can't even name that he says this son of yours and he's cold towards his brother who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him See, the older brother is really good at exposing the sins of his brother, but he doesn't see the sins within himself. Really good at exposing other people's sins, not so much looking at his own life and reflective about that. Do you see how this, this can be so sneaky? In his work, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis addressed this argumentative attitude through a character called Big Ghost um, and another named Len. Now, in this book, The Great Divorce, um, it's about people. It's a fictional 
story, but basically it's about people who have gone to hell and what their life is like. And people in hell, you'll notice they don't have any name, but they're nameless, and they go throughout their life holding on to themselves. And then you have this man, Len, who, who is a, a murderer who's coming from heaven. And Len is sent to the big ghost to ask his forgiveness and bring him to heaven with him. Now, again, this is a fictional story, but this helps us to understand this argumentative spirit. And so I'm going to go through some of this, okay? But the big ghost says this, and he knew that Len had killed somebody. He knew that Len was a murderer. Here's what he says. Personally, I'd have thought you and I, would, it would be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. Basically, he's saying, I think that I should be in heaven. You should be in hell. That's how it works because I know what you did. Len says, uh, very likely we shall be if you'll stop thinking about me as a murderer. The ghost says to him, well, look at me now. I, I've, go I've gone straight all my life. I didn't, I'm not trying to say I was a religious man and I, and I don't say I, I didn't have any faults, far from it. But I've done my best all my life, see? I've done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. If I, if I wanted a drink, I paid for it. And if I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's what sort of person I was. Len says to him, it would be much better not to go on about that now. The big ghost says, who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was, see? I'm, I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that in a fancy robe, and I'm some poor man, but I gotta have my rights, you see? Len says, oh no, it's not so bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. The big ghost says back to him, that, that's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best and never done anything wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a murderer, a bloody murderer like you. Len says, who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. The big ghost says, what do you keep on arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of person I was. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And listen to this. Len finishes with this. He says, then do at once. Ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. Do you hear that last part? The big ghost is arguing, saying, Look at all the things that I've done. I just want my rights. I want what I deserve. And Len is like, no, you don't want what you deserve. <laughs> you don't want what you deserve. And he goes on later, and this big ghost is arguing about his life, and he's like, he finds out he wasn't as good of a person as he thought he was. But he was willing to argue it all the way to his destruction. Argumentative spirit. Last, absent. Look at verse 31. 
And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. And it is fitting to celebrate and be glad for your, this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So lastly, what makes this older brother absent? What makes him absent? Well, first, the father says this. He says, you are always with me. You are always with me. Again, what is the gift? What is the, 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 the end goal it was the relationship with the father, not the stuff, right? But, but the older brother was more worried and concerned about the stuff, and he was mad about the stuff. It was the same thing that the younger brother did. He took the stuff, but he was more open about it. The younger brother was more secretive about it. But the father says, you've had me the whole time. You cared about me, Right? See, he was physically present but emotionally absent. The son's heart was disconnected from the father's heart. Because next he says this, the father says, all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. Like all you had to do was ask me and I would have given it to you. See, all the son had to do was come to the father and say, father, could I do this? But his relationship was so disconnected and so messed up and warped into this, this mindset of it's like, okay, I got to earn it, that he didn't understand the relationship in it all. And here's the spiritual truth of it all. The father says to the older brother, he says, for this, your brother. Remember the guy who said you're, you called him just my son, but he's your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, this here is the cliffhanger. This is the cliffhanger. Why? Because this is pointing out something that was missing in the older brother. Something that was absent. Remember, where was the older brother while his younger brother was out living a life? By the end, living in a pigsty. Where, where was he? He was in the field. He was in the field. But the question is, where should he have been? Where should he have been? This is a long quote, but I'm going to read this here. This is from Prodigal God. But this is super helpful, and this helps bring this all together. Here's what it says. It says, there is one striking difference between the third parable and the first two. In the first two, someone goes out and searches diligently for that which is lost. The searchers let nothing distract them or stand in their way. By the time we get to the third story and we hear about the plight of the lost son, we are fully prepared to expect that someone will set out to search for him. No one does. It is startling, and Jesus meant it to be so. By placing the three parables so closely together, he is inviting thoughtful listeners to ask, well, who should have gone out and searched for the lost son? Edmund Clowney recounts the true story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier missing in action during the Vietnam War. When the family could get no word out of, uh, of him, through any official channel, the older son flew to Vietnam and risking his life, searched the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. It's said that despite 
the danger he was never hurt because those on both sides had heard of his dedication and respected his quest. Some of them called him simply the brother. This is what the elder brother and the parable should have done. This is what the true elder brother would have done. He would have said, Father, my younger brother has been a fool and now is his life, now his life is in ruins. But I will go look for him and bring him home. And if the inheritance is gone, as I expect, I'll bring him back into the family at my expense. The younger brother's restoration was free to him, but it came at an enormous cost to the elder brother. The father could not just forgive the younger son. Someone had to pay. The father could not reinstate him except at the expense of the elder brother. There was no other way. But Jesus does not put the true elder brother in the story. One who is willing to pay any cost to seek and save which is lost. It is heartbreaking. The younger son gets a Pharisee for a brother instead. Do you see what he's saying here? Jesus is going all the way back to the beginning of why he's telling this parable. And he's saying, there is something that you Pharisees and scribes should be doing, but you're not. You are the older brothers that are unwilling to go look for the younger brothers. But thank God that God himself came and is the true elder brother that seeks and saves the lost. See, the Pharisees are face to face with the true elder brother, the better older brother, who says, I have come to bind up the wounded, the hurting, the lost, the confused, the true elder brother, Jesus Christ. That's the one who comes to seek and save the lost. And he's come for the younger brothers, but he's also come for the older brothers and he's beckoning them to come in. You see, at the end of the story, we don't know, does the older brother come into the home or not? It doesn't say, Jesus leaves us with the cliffhanger. We don't know. But in many ways, it's meant to speak to us today to continue to come in to the Father's embrace, his arms, and not be the absent child that's there physically, but not there emotionally, spiritually, everything. So some takeaways. How can we apply this to our hearts today? The first one is this. Self-righteousness wears many disguises. Self-righteousness wears many disguises. Trevin Wax uh, said this in an article. He says, what are some ways we can be self-righteous without knowing it? After all, self-righteousness wears many disguises. The scary thing about self-righteousness is that we usually don't recognize it in ourselves. We think because of our religious practices that we are okay with God. We think because of how we pray that we are trusting in him, not in ourselves. We think because of how we live that we are doing better than the people around us. Self-righteousness stinks. Unfortunately, we are the last to smell it on ourselves. We're the last to smell it on ourselves. And so what I, I want us to get today is that there are some areas in our lives that we could be living as a self-righteous older brother. God, help us to see these places, right, and to repent of those things. The next point is that self-righteousness takes many forms. I'm going to give you a list of just some different ways 
that self-righteousness can creep into our lives. Job righteousness. Here's what we say. I'm a harder worker than everyone else, so God should reward me. I'm a harder worker than everyone else, so I, God, you, you need to reward me. Self-righteousness, friends. Family righteousness. Because I do the right things as a parent, I'm more godly than parents who can't control their kids. I did not think I had this in me until I started seeing as a younger person, I'm married, I'm like, oh yeah, parenting, that's gonna be easy, right? Man, yeah, they should get their kids under control a little bit better. And when I'm a dad, you know, things are gonna be different. And then I'm telling you, the Lord gave us three that uh, I would say maybe young younger brothers, right? Younger brother type people that are just a little bit harder. And so my, my wife and I were like, Lord, okay. This is what she, okay. But I'm telling you, it struck out that whole self-righteous, family righteousness thing real quick. Real quick. A lot of prayer, a lot of God's grace, <laughs> a lot of repentance, right? Self-righteousness takes many forms. Theological righteousness. I have better theology than other people. And so God prefers me over the people who have very little theology like I do. See, friends, if, if, if there's theology that we are growing in, that is the grace of God. <laughs> that is the grace of God. But what can happen is we can start to think that we know more than people and, oh, I know this verse and that verse and all these things. And so we start to become people who have this theological righteousness. Is it bad to know theology? No, but it's the way that we use it because look at the Pharisees. They knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. That was the problem. Intellectual righteousness. I'm better read, more articulate, and more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me more superior. Schedule righteousness. I'm self-disciplined and rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others and makes me better than others. Mercy righteousness. I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Everyone should be like me. Financial righteousness. I manage my money more wisely and stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic people who can't control their spending. And so we become financially righteous. We feel like we're better than others. Political righteousness if you really love God, you'll just vote like I vote and you'll act like me. Political righteousness. Friends, this takes many forms. It takes many forms. And so for us, are we continually coming to God saying, God, help me not to become this elder brother that's just angry, argumentative, bitter. The last one, self-righteousness keeps us from God. Flannery O'Connor wrote a book about how deceptive sin is. And she wrote about this character, Hazel Motes, that um, says this about him. Says this about him. He might, or he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. 
He knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. Now, now, ride that down to what it, what it really means, like from the surface to the depths. Like, I'm going to avoid sin so I can avoid Jesus. I'm going to be a really good person so I can look around and say I'm a really good person. Friends, the only good person is Jesus Christ. The only perfect person is Jesus Christ. And so for us, are we willing to ride down into the depths and say, let me face some of these things that are inside of me? Because if we're trying to avoid sin and live morally without God, ironically, we become the older brothers. And what happens is we start to look at Jesus as a moral teacher, a good model, and a helper, but we avoid him being our savior. We avoid him being our savior. And so what happens is we start to trust in our own goodness rather than the, the goodness of Jesus Christ. See, are we trying to save ourselves? Or are we willing to run home and be embraced by the father who says it's the younger brother and the older brother who need the same embrace? Sin looks different, but the same embrace from the father filled with grace. Galatians 4, 4 through 7 tells us about this older brother who came, the better older brother. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. See, as Paul is writing to this Galatian culture, sons were valued, daughters were devalued. And as he's talking to the Galatians and to us today, He's saying, men, women, I'm lifting you both up to be treated as the son, to get the inheritance because of the son. You get the full inheritance, the full assurance of everything that God says, this is what it matters. You get that through the Son, Jesus Christ. You are valuable to him. Sons, daughters, lifted up together to receive the inheritance where you cry, Abba, Father. God's not just some fear-based judge that's up there ready to pound me. <laughs> but he's a loving father coming to embrace me, coming to embrace me, coming to treat me with value and worth that I've never experienced before in my life. That's who he is. And so will you trust him today? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this parable. Pray that you help us, Lord, to apply this to our hearts. There are areas that self-righteousness can creep into our lives and to the church.
And I pray, Lord, that we will continually repent of those areas and come to you asking for your grace, for your kindness, for your help. Lord, help us to remember that picture of the Father embracing the Son, but not being so distant and far off like the older brother, but coming in for the hug and just saying, I I need that too. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.